When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Stuart McCarty to tell us about his fascinating book from Lueth Press titled The Nine Maidens, Priestesses of the Ancient World. This book does a lot of very cool things with some interesting sources to trace out a surprisingly similar collection of myths and legends about nine priestesses, nine maidens, nine, we'll get into what they are, (laughs) but a surprisingly similar story across time and space. Um, This is absolutely fascinating combination of history, um, examining different kinds of sources. So Stuart, thank you so much for being here to take us through your book. It's an absolute pleasure. Before we do get into the book, though, would you mind giving us a bit of background on yourself and why you wrote this? Um, Well, yeah, I I have a master's degree in history from uh, somewhere in the middle of the 19th century. And I, over the years, have been drawn more and more into folklore, particularly folklore associated with ancient monuments, uh, as an attempt just to understand more about Scotland's past. And I've been broadcasting and writing about this sort of stuff for about the past 40 odd years. And I have been, I think, just coming up 30 years lecturing at the Centre for Open Learning at Edinburgh University, where I lecture on Scottish history and folklore. And I've written, I think it's coming up, 40 books uh, in, in that time, mainly about folklore or collections of folk tales and I suppose in a way I can actually say that the Nine Maidens has been my compass through all of this strangely I've only thought about that since you got in touch with me but it's being attracted by the story of the Nine Maidens that's led me into some incredible things over the years. Well, that's quite a fun way to start off. Um, Lots to get into with that. Given, uh, I think one of the strengths of the book is the sort of surprising combinations of languages, places and cultures that come together through this story. Can you tell us about kind of the range of those that you cover and how you decided that? Well, basically what happened was the, the thing kicks off with a story that was told about a Pictish symbol stone. The Picts were the people inhabiting Scotland roughly when the Romans came, and they left a lot of carved stones behind them. And where I lived, where I was brought up, Dundee, there was a stone that had a story about nine maidens, which fascinated me. Uh, These particular ones were eaten by a dragon, 
which is a good way to start. And it was actually through following up the material about them that, in a way, it feels like I've been led on a journey. The material kind of laid itself out. The more I looked, the more I found. And I have now gone as far as Siberia, and I've talked to um, one shaman about this, the ideas that are still extant out there. I have investigated stuff in Africa, uh, and of course all over Europe, and there are traces, I think, of even the same ideas as far away as North Korea, China, India, and possibly even in uh, Oceania. And it seems to me that the one of the things that's problematic when you're dealing with material that comes from the British Isles is that people tend to get hung up on this notion of the Celtic. And on the back of that, there is a kind of, I wouldn't say an obsession with language, but a concentration on language, which I find not too helpful because what I've been trying to do with all of this is to find out the ideas that are coming through language. How do we get such a diversity of stories that are basically talking about the same thing in cultures so far apart? Mm. And so obsessing on the linguistic difference doesn't really get us there. Um, yeah, starting the then... The, linguistic, the thing about the linguistic mm-hmm. difference is that the language, there's a danger, not just with linguistics, but there's a, there's a danger uh, in all of our institutions that are devoted to uh, studying particularly the past, that we fixate on methodology. And I find that from my point of view, and I've been involved with all kinds of language and language politics throughout my life. However, I find that if I look at the language too much, I'm beginning to miss what is the bigger picture. Because the to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what the, what story what language the story is told in. It's what the story is that matters. Well, let's get into what the story actually is then, Um, starting where you did as a child. Broadly speaking, because there is, of course, some amount of variation, what Mm -hmm. is the Nine Maidens story in Scotland? Well, the way I found it was this, this, this story of nine women who were sisters uh, who were actually killed by a dragon, and then the dragon itself is chased down and killed. Uh, And this is where the symbol stone was supposedly raised. And I I thought this was absolutely fascinating. I was perfectly well aware of the fact that, both religiously and cosmologically speaking, that the dragon uh, can be seen as an agent of chaos, effectively, and that the defeat of the dragon is the bringing of order. And this is what initially I thought I was looking at, but then I found out that just over the hill from where the dragon was supposedly killed, there was a different group of nine maidens who have actually survived in Scottish culture as a group of saints, early saints, daughters of a guy called St. Don of Aldous. And it was from there that I began to realise there were other stories about these saints in Scotland and there were dedications to them and various churches, and also wells, which is very significant, because wells obviously have a significance going back a great, great period in time. And it's this, I suppose, what I began to realise was an overlay, that the nine maidens, particularly as saints and the dedications to them, 
appeared to be an overlay of something that was here before Christianity arrived, an idea that preceded Christianity. And from there, um, well, I'm still following that through in actual fact. Uh, my latest book is actually going much, much deeper into that. Mm. All right. An intriguing starting point then in Scotland. Um yeah. Focusing on, I suppose, the similarities and the differences, not from a purely linguistic point of view, but as you said, the content of the story, what sorts of things do we see if we trace the story from Scotland into places like Ireland and Wales? Well, the one of the things that surprises me, I must admit, is that you have a very clear link in Wales with uh, Caridwin, who is uh, a goddess figure, a pre-Christian goddess figure. And in many ways, she is like Bride uh, here in Scotland, who is very much like Bridget in Ireland, but it's not the same. There, there are clear differences between them. But the, there is this association in Ireland to some extent, but very strongly in Wales and in Scotland as well, this association with powerful female figures who are either taken over and absorbed into the stories of the early Christian church or who survive effectively as echoes or memories of powerful supernatural female beings. The the tendency these days is to be referring to them as goddesses. I'm a bit careful about that because when we look at the ideas that seem to be coming through from the pre-Christian times, we're dealing with ideas of sacrality, we're dealing with ideas of ritual, but we're not necessarily dealing with ideas that conform to what we think about religion in the modern world. And in that sense, in that sense, the figures who they're associated with, particularly in Wales, and Brittany is, is a little bit the same um, as Wales, which is maybe to be expected, but this idea of the powerful female is one that I... I've found quite inspiring uh, down the years because obviously most of this stuff has been written out of history, though it does survive through oral traditions. One of the things that comes up is in terms of what we know about these figures um, is through the names. And you've already mentioned a little bit kind of there's clear links, but there's still differences. Can you tell us a bit more about what we can learn from the names of these nine maidens in some of the places that they turn up? Well, the, one of the, the things that always struck me was that the best known of the original story is Mayota or Mazota. Uh, we only have names for three of them. Uh, Findoka and Fincana were the other two. And it's quite clear with Findoka and Fincana that we're dealing with names that are derived from white, Fin. Uh, and that the idea of sacrality in its broadest sense being associated with white is, is very, very widely spread. But what got me very early on was the idea that the eldest and probably the leader of the nine sisters that were initially introduced to, her name begins Ma. And throughout the world, it's amazing the number of powerful female beings whose name begins M.A., which is not actually that difficult to understand because it's actually just about the first sound that children make. And in that sense, 
it leads into other things as well. For instance, one of the spin-offs from all of this is I do a lot of work on landforms now. And the biggest range of mountains in Scotland is the Mamours, and that's coming from mam, which is a word for breast, the female breast. And there are layers of awareness, I would say, is the correct terminology here. There appear to be layers of awareness in the names associated with these figures that resonate with possibly, only possibly, because I wouldn't like to, to claim this, but with even the possibility of matriarchal concepts in the far past, certainly with the idea of powerful female beings worthy of respect. Mm. I think I'll probably keep asking you to pick that thread up as we go through. Um, But before we get there, I'd love to map out a bit more of the geographic aspect of this. Thinking obviously about Scotland, the mind kind of immediately goes to, okay, but what about Ireland and Wales? Once that's covered, though, the question is often then, what about the Vikings? What about the Norse legends? Um, What do we see there? What we see is uh, overlaps and differences. But one of the things that I have been, because, you know, I've been teaching for, oh God, over 30 years now teaching this stuff. One of the things I try and get students to comprehend is that an awful lot of our reading in the modern world talks about the Celtic world or the Germanic world. And what my research shows is that the separation between these two on grounds of language is a hindrance because the ideas between them are so strong, the history between them is so strong. We know, for instance, from uh, DNA material that the the first major influx of people from Scandinavia into Scotland was something like 7,000 years ago. And the linkage between this part of the world and the northwest of Europe up until maybe five, 6,000 years ago was greatly helped by the fact that the North Sea didn't exist. There was a land bridge and the cultural links between Britain as an island and Northwest Europe are incredibly strong. And we see this again in the stories of the Nine Maidens because they are different. And I should say something about that difference. One of the things that is very clear when you study story in depth is that the oral tradition lives where it lives. People develop their stories within their own environment. They tell the stories within the world they know. Otherwise, these stories would not have relevance to the people. So what happens is that stories, no matter where they originate, become localised over time. And as they become localised, they are almost bound to become differentiated. And I think this might allow for the fact that although we have got strong similarities uh, between the Norse and the Irish, there are also clear differences. For instance, at the very heart of Norse mythology, you have this idea that Heimdall is the son of nine mothers. And this is quite, quite remarkable. There's also uh, an Irish, uh, an ancient Irish poem that survives the ruined son of Rigdon, where he comes across nine women while he's out on his ship. And by some means, which is not made clear in the story, uh, a child is born to him. That child ends up dead. But what we're talking about here are ideas that are clearly interlinked 
But what you also find with the Norse stuff is that the linkage to powerful females is quite remarkable. Um, think of Menglod here, who is a goddess of healing. She has nine uh, companions, effectively. But also, classically, according to Grimm anyway, the Valkyrie, who are priestesses of battle, I suppose you could say, they're nine as well. And we have late stories from the Norse of groups of nine females from Iceland in a fabulous story uh, about a guy called Thedrandi, where one lot are presented as black and the other lot are presented as white. And it's quite obvious that the white ones are the incoming religion, Christianity, and the black ones are the old religion. So you're getting the, I would say, the symbolism of these groups of nine being used in different ways in different cultures, but they're all still, if you like, drawing from the same well. And now we're back at wells, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wells crop up all the time. Yeah. Um, I think there are some very obvious similarities between what you've talked us through so far. And even without being an expert in folklore, um, my understanding of the sort of military history of these places goes, yeah, okay, I, there's a lot of links going on, right? We might expect to see some similarities um, between them. I admit, opening this book, I was not expecting to be reading about the Greek muses. Um, ancient Greek is kind of not what I was thinking about when we were thinking about Picts in Scotland. To what extent do we want to think of the ancient Greek muses as being part of the Nine Maidens tradition? Well, I must admit, when I came across the extent of material related to this in, in Greek, I, 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 I was bowled over. I mean, my, my natural tendency is, is to steer clear uh, of, of, of Greek and Roman stuff because of the influence it's had on ideas here and the way that indigenous traditions have been basically made to conform to them. Um, but if you go through the, the Greek material, what you find is time and time again, there are references to groups of nine priestesses, either on mountains, which is common to all the nine groups, or at wells. And they're all on different mountains. And they're all at different wells. And these are, it, to me, it was this was actually a bit of a breakthrough because at that point I began to think, well, what we've got with the Greek muses is a kind of composite of all of these different groups that are appeared to have existed in ancient Greece and who were, again, similar to each other, but again, they were localised. So what I think we're talking about is effectively that what the muses are is a representation of what can be seen as an institution that existed right across classical Greece, which was these groups of, of nine women who would be living on mountaintops uh, or at wells or both, and who would be involved in healing. Shape-shifting crops up a lot, um, which is very interesting in lights in the light of what survives into the 20th century. Uh, and they're also involved as seers, diviners. So their role is, in modern terms, actually, the role is very shamanistic. Hmm. Trying to think of my childhood views of the Greek muses and going, hmm, okay, that's a whole new layer to um, add to them. Yeah. Well, I, I, I came across um, a work uh, from the 16th century uh, an English work which actually refers to all these different 
groups. And I thought, oh, he's making up. So I actually started delving into it myself. In translation, I do not, you know, uh, I don't read Greek. I can order a pint and that's about it. Um, but I, I looked into it and there are all these different groups and they, they crop up quite extensively, actually, in the works of Robert Graves. He uh, paid attention to them. Uh, he says the Maynards were um, particularly, he claims they were groups of nine, and he sees this almost as a as a marker of these groups, of, you know, these groups of what were clearly in the, I suppose in the technical terms, psychopomps, the people who were involved in the spirit world and dealing with, you know, certainly not day-to-day matters. Hmm. Very interesting to kind of put these things together. Uh, I think there's probably going to be a lot of people going back to their ancient Greek and going, hang on, wait, let's let's look at this again. Um, One aspect that comes up when thinking through the ancient Greek side and then kind of going back to the Scottish, Irish, Welsh, etc. stories, um, it's not just, as you talk about in the book, it's not just the nine maidens. There's quite often one man. Yeah, involved with them somehow. Yeah, is what's his role like? How does that change? What's that bit of the story? Well, the there are some there's again because we're dealing with material from such a diverse range uh, of locales and such a vast range of time, things are not always exactly the same. Whereas in some cases, you get like Heimdall, who's supposedly born of nine. Uh, in other cases, there are suggestions by some commentators that the single male involved is actually a sacrificial victim, which was something that Graves picked up on. Uh, and I didn't really give that much credence till one night. I was teaching a course on the Nine Maidens uh, on the ninth floor uh, of a building at Edinburgh University to a class that was entirely composed of women. And we came out at the end of the class and we were chatting away. And they all, ladies, get in the lift first. And I was just about to step into the lift and I noticed that it was nine of them. And I don't know what happened next. I apparently took a step back. The door closed. Uh, I walked down the nine flights of stairs and here was the nine of them waiting for me on the ground floor saying, are you okay? And I... At that point, I thought, was this just an idea of the the possibility of sacrifice triggering something in me, or was there something else going on? I don't know, but this is one of the intriguing things about the depth of this material and the variety of this material. Because if you think about Arthur and the Arthurian um, material has quite a, uh, an extensive range of nine maidens, different nine groups of nine maidens in it. But if you think of how he is said to have gone out of the world after the Battle of Camelot, he is taken on a barge by Morgan and her eight sisters who live on the Isle of Avalon, where they are healers, diviners, and all the other kind of aspects that we get of the nine maidens. He is taken away and supposedly to live eternally, the idea being that he will come back if needed. And what we're seeing here is, I think, a remnant of an incredibly old, old idea that some people 
I've actually thought might go back um, to even before the, the Greeks start putting together their mythology, and they think that this could be an aspect of Kronos. And the tie-in is that islands, because Arthur is taken to an island, and I know which one. Hmm. And can you, there there were one or two other, I'm trying to remember the names off the top of my head, um, there were other stories in which the one man turns up, the Greek muses one? Uh, that's Apollo. Now, Apollo, okay. is, yeah, Apollo is absolutely, he is fascinating because his um, mother, Leto, is said to be from the north. And in some of the Greek material, there is reference to her having come from the north and that Apollo himself may have links to the, to the north. And there are even suggestions in Herodotus, the earliest of all of our historians, that there were links uh, between what is known as the Winged Temple of Apollo in Hyperborea, which people have been arguing over for a very long time. Um, recent thinking would probably put it in Orkney, but that there were links between them uh, and Delphi in Greece. And it is within the bounds of possibility that that level of communication was going on. Which would, again, allow for all sorts of oral traditions and stories to be pretty directly transmitted. What a tantalising thought. Um, I'd love to ask you to pick up the thread that we sort of hinted at earlier about the idea of um, matriarchal figures, of a mother goddess even. What do you think the Nine Maidens tradition tells us about that? Well, I, this is, as I said earlier on, the, it's almost like I'm being led by the nose through all of this. Um, I have to explain something that does sound extremely weird. But the first time I picked up a book, which I thought may contain something that would be of interest, and it fell open at a page which helped me right away and then proved to be the only thing in the book that was relevant, I thought, that's bizarre. The second time it happened, I thought, that's very strange. After a while, I stopped caring about it at all. It's like there is almost a trace I'm following, and the trace, I think, leads back to the notion of how the world was seen before the religions of the book uh, came into the world. And the great Scottish folklorist um, Mackenzie, W.C. Mackenzie, he, uh, sorry, Donald Mackenzie, Donald Lee Mackenzie, he actually suggested that the the Kaya, who is the mother goddess figure in all ancient Scottish stuff, lived on the highest mountain in these islands, Ben Nevis, with her eight sisters. And he said that he had got this from traditional material, which I have not got. Uh, I, I have not found his sources. But time and time again, what I'm finding is that the association with places like Avalon, the idea of healing, the idea of the sisters existing on as a practicing group of priestesses, I think ties in very much with the idea that in the pre-Christian world, effectively, uh, that the world was understood as having been created by female agency. And I would say that the works of Maria Gimbutas in all of this have helped greatly and that 
some of the ideas that become associated with this can be quite fanciful, but at the same time make a great deal of sense. And I think what we're looking at is effectively, well, the French, sorry, the Bretons, I, I apologise immediately. The, the Breton idea of these nine maidens who, in their traditions, lived on the Ile de Seine of the northwest of uh, Brittany. They, their island is now actually called the island of the Druidesses. They are seen as Druidesses. And I think that what we may actually be seeing with this widespread incidence of groups of female practitioners of ritual, that they quite possibly were the ones who were in charge of ritual and belief in the pre-Christian world rather than the Druids. I think that there was there was a distinct possibility that what existed was Druidesses, not Druids. Or possibly one or possibly one Druid for every nine, you know, nine Druidesses. And the thing about that is that it's leaping over so many years of of research and scholarship that suggests that we have a, a clear understanding of what the world was um, before the Christians arrived. And what I keep finding is material that suggests that this idea of female agency was at the heart of how people understood the world. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Um I'd love to ask you about something we've not talked about yet, but is very much in the book as well, um, which is that we shouldn't give ourselves false ideas that this Nine Maidens tradition is very, very, very old and only very old, that it stayed there. Um, because you give some instances in the book that there's still some stuff going on pretty recently that can be traced to this as well. Can you take us through some of those more recent rituals, traditions, and practices? Yeah. Well, the, the, this uh, came basically through the works of Mircea Eliad, uh, looking at shamanism uh, in, in Siberia. And in some of the traditions out there, uh, remembering, of course, that shamanism is its not a religion as we understand it. Um, each shaman is his own master. They, they don't have hierarchies. Uh, though they have hierarchies of power, they don't have hierarchies of structure the way we are used to in religion. And in one of the belief systems there, uh, when the shaman goes on his initial journey, he actually has to go and consort, he said delicately, with the nine daughters of Solboni, the god of the dawn. And this was recorded in the, I think, in the 1920s or the 1930s. Uh, I have spoken to a friend of mine who's a shaman and he is not part of that tradition, so he doesn't actually know. But what I can say is that I'm trying to think back now. It would be just over 20 years ago. Uh, there was an earlier version of this book. This one is expanded, uh, not just in terms of material, but in terms of geography. But I was giving a talk um, may have even been at the Edinburgh uh, Book Festival. And this young lady came up to me and said, thank you very, very much indeed. Uh, my friends and I really, really appreciate your book. I said, oh, yes, you and the French. I said, yes, my eight friends. And the suggestion that was made then was that there was actually an extant group. Now, I got called away. I, you know, it was one of these... 
things where it's all busy and all the rest of it. And by the time I came back to try and speak to this lass, um, who I think had come from Australia, um, she was actually suggesting that there was <laughs> possibly extant groups of them. I don't know, but it's possible. Because the ideas, you know, if, if you look at the, the, the strength of, the, the, of these ideas, and also one of the things that people forget is that oral tradition did not disappear with the advent of literacy. I've actually collected material about the kayak, the goddess figure, in Scotland that has never ever been recorded before in the past few years because things continue. And if people find value in ideas that are coming to them through oral tradition rather than through literature, they will follow that. Mm. Well, it's... Fabulous to hear you um, link these things together and help us think through them both in terms of what it might reveal about the past and what is potentially happening now. Um, we've alluded to it a few times, but I'd love to ask as my final question, what you're working on now, what you're working on next, if you want to give us a bit of a preview of it. Well, I, um, I can truthfully say that when I started investigating the Nine Maidens, um, I hadn't written any books of any kind. I had been involved in various performance arts. I used to be a musician. Um, but ever since I discovered the Nine Maidens, I have been on this odd and strange path, which has led me to looking for the kayak. The kayak is this, well, what she does is she forms the land. She works the weather. She's the oldest living creature and in certain stories she can also bring the dead back to life and this to me means that what we're looking at is I hate the word goddess in this respect but it's about the only word I can use and I am compiling a book at the moment I'm very close to finishing it which involves stories about the kayak place names uh, about the kayak and also land forums which are representative of the beliefs that people used to have in this feminine agency being at the heart of life specific places in the landscape that look like reclining females the probably the best one known uh, is at Callanish in, uh, in the Isle of Lewis the Callanish 19 year event which the Standing Stones focus on, which is the, the major standstill of the moon. That happens uh, along the body of a reclining female who is called the Kayich Namonti, the old woman of the moors. And it's realising how much material pertaining to her still survives and that you can see in the landscape today. So that's where I'm going, because I think the world needs to be looking at things differently. We need to understand that the earth needs to be nurtured, uh, just as the earth has nurtured us. Uh, we have to nurture the earth and look after the earth. And I think one of the ways of doing that is actually to try and understand how people used to perceive the world. So that's basically what's at the back of this book, which is due out on International Women's Day next year. Wonderful. What an exciting project. Um, thank you so much for sharing that preview with us. 
Um, And of course, while we wait for International Women's Day next year, of course, listeners can read the book we've primarily been discussing titled The Nine Maidens, Priestesses of the Ancient World. Um, Stuart, thank you so much for being with us and taking us through all of these fascinating stories and connections. Absolutely my pleasure, Amanda.